Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Bijal Parmar is a sought-after keynote speaker, trainer, mastermind facilitator, business coach, and consultant. So since 2011, he's traveled the world sharing his inspiring story. A few years ago, Bijal was desperate to find answers in life's toughest questions while enduring a period of personal hardship that seemed to have no end. Despite the setbacks, he remained a dedicated husband and father and continued to follow his path through life's adventure. Bijal is a fractional COO for a number of different brands, And while traveling the world, he's helped build several businesses, inspired thousands all over the world, all while homeschooling his two daughters. Together with his wife, Yogi, and two daughters, they facilitate a life-transforming tour retreat to India, retracing their first two weeks when they commence their five-year adventure to share just some of the life lessons they learned about resilience, overcoming obstacles, and learning how to live life in the flow of life. So Bijal, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thank you so much, Cameron. Yeah, I'm especially interested to learn about some of this kind of flow of life and being able to travel remotely and work remotely. And um, just because I'm I'm kind of getting ready to set out on that adventure myself for about five years, as is my girlfriend. And I've also just seen a, a real shift in our workforce because of the last six months we've been in this COVID where people do want to start traveling again because we're kind of being held back. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey and, and how you got to where you are today? And then we'll kind of dive into some more questions. Yeah, we would love to. So really, the adventure started uh, literally exactly 10 years, almost to the month. Um, in October, sorry, in June of 2010, um, I just started working for a new company and the lawyer called us up in June and said, I'm really sorry, I've got you, but your immigration paperwork's not going to go through. So you have two choices. Choice number one is become illegal in the US or choice number two is you leave the country um, in about before October. And so we didn't want to become illegal. So we chose to leave the country, but we didn't know where we're going to go, what we're going to do. You know, we'd been in San Diego at that time for almost a decade. Both my kids were born in, in the US. Uh, so, in, uh, you know, the first day was just panic. Oh my God, what are we going to do? Then my wife invited a few friends over, a couple of friends over. And over literally a cup of tea, Indian tea, my friend said to me, hey, how many of you guys go to India? Now I am of Indian descent. And I've been there a couple of times on vacation, um, but never lived there. My wife has never been there. My kids never been there. So it was literally like going to a foreign country. But in the moment, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So on July 4th, Independence Day of 2010, I'd just gone to drop my brother-in-law, his wife and family uh, to the airport. I came back and my wife had already pulled out all of our stuff from the closet. And literally for the next 30 days, we basically sold 95% of our stuff. It was challenging at first, but the more we started to let go, the more we just started to experience kind of this freedom. Anyway, to cut a long story short, in October, in, in September, um, we left the US uh, with four red bags, three computers, two kids, one wife, and away we went. We didn't know it was going to be five years, but it actually turned into a five-year virtual vacation um, experience. At the time, I was working with uh, you know virtual employees in the Philippines, clients in the US. So very quickly had to adapt to this kind of new new lifestyle. And I've got to say this, Cameron, it was the best five years of, of our lives. Just absolutely incredible. That freedom just to, uh, you know, just to kind of go with the flow. Um, 
it was just magical and especially great for the kids who got to see so much of the world mm. during those five years. Will you do it again? Yes and no. Here's, here's what it is. I would definitely travel again. We, we are just literally itching to travel. Mm. Would we do it as a family? No, because my oldest daughter, you know, she, she, she kind of bypassed school uh, straight into a kind of a, a career helping. You know, she's, she started speaking on stage at kind of age eight. Um, so she was homeschooled. Both my kids are homeschooled. My older child, she's now 15, so my younger child, she's now 15. So she's in a more traditional kind of uh, um, path of, of high school and probably on to college. So yes, the answer is yes. Uh, the, the bigger question is we're just kind of waiting for the right time. Either she decides to go into college in the US or we decide to travel and she goes to somewhere in school in Europe somewhere. We don't know. But, but yes, the answer is absolutely. We just, I think we have those mornings, we just wake up and think, what are we doing? You know, that, that those five years are just so magical. Why did we recreate the very thing that we basically escape from? Escape of course. From? Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard because we get, we get pulled back into that kind of vortex of, of the marketing and friends or what we think. Did you, did you struggle with kind of what you're supposed to tell your friends or what you're supposed to tell your family about what you're doing? Uh, we didn't struggle. I mean, some some people kind of were, our family, my family was very worried. I mean, you know, being of Indian descent, the, the idea of not sending kids to school kind of sent shockwaves through the community. Like, how is that possible? You know, right. that, even when we were traveling and we would meet people in India, the, the, the look of disbelief when, um, when we told them, yeah, we homeschool our kids. Now, at, least, you know, at least here in the U.S., then there's a culture of homeschooling. It's not, it's not a new thing. But in India, I mean, homeschooling is literally unheard of. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, there was concern. Our friends were very supportive. Our close friends were very supportive. Um, some of them actually even have now um, done the same thing themselves. They've actually sold their stuff and actually they've now left on their world, world tours. In fact, one of the families that was inspired by our story, they've been uh, in quarantine in Bali, but they've just been having an incredible time out there. It's a good so, place yeah. to be quarantined. I'd take, I'd take quarantine in Bali. I've spent um, about three and a half months total in India. I've been to India four times, love the country. I've done speaking tours over there with YPO, love the people. But yeah, cultural, complete cultural disconnect for your daughters going over for the first time, which is amazing. Yeah. I think we need it. So talk about, about your, tell us about the, the kind of roles that you're playing in the virtual COOs and, and what does a virtual COO do with these companies and how do you organize some of your time? Yeah, so, um, so I kind of have to kind of go back a little bit to kind of tell you how this came about. So I spent 10 years with one company. The, the leadership team was really you know, two, three people. Um, and then the rest of the team was basically over in the Philippines. We kind of grew it from 100 virtual assistants when I joined to almost 500 at its peak. So I've always been working virtually, even when I got back to the U.S. in 2015. It was still pretty much virtual. Um, you know, I'd, I'd kind of meet up with the CEO, uh, you know, once or twice a week. But more or less, we were, we were virtual right for over the 10 years. So when that kind of relationship came to a kind of close back in November last year, um, I wasn't looking to kind of jump straight back into another job. However, I was kind of introduced to uh, Paul, who runs Rethink Academy um, in the UK. And he said, hey, would you come work for me? You know, you've been highly recommended. I said, you know, I really don't want to step back into a job, um, especially an, hour, an hourly-based job. Um, so we kind of, you know, we talked about it and, you know, I asked him, like, what, what, what are the challenges you're going through? He kind of shared a document or two. And then we kind of didn't hear, hear it from each other for, for about a couple of weeks. Then right around Christmas, so I think Christmas Eve it may have been, he, he kind of um, he sent me another message, hey, Bijal, we're having a leadership meeting in, in January. 
would you just kind of fly over, meet the team, and let's see what we can do? So I said, well, you know what, my parents are in the UK, you know, why not, I'll go over and meet the team. Um, I'm not committing to anything, so I, I flew over to the UK, met Paul and his team, great team, and I could really see a vision of what they were attempting to create, um, and I also got to meet my, my family too. So we, we kind of went back and forth for a couple of weeks. I said, look, Paul, here's, here's the deal. I'm happy to kind of step in, in into this role. And at that time, I didn't even know the word fractional COO, even the, even the concept of the um, visionary integrator relationship. I just, I think in January, picked up the book uh, Rocket Fuel after Paul actually recommended it to me. And I was like, oh, okay, I can, I can see myself kind of doing this. So I literally kind of fell into uh, this, this role of fractional COO. So Paul has two companies. So I, I kind of help them from an operational coaching slash consulting perspective on both of his. Then I have another client in the US that's also in the kind of the, the, the business coaching education space. And then I have a kind of a, a several smaller clients, you know, both in India and, and over here. And so it's kind of this hybrid kind of coaching, consulting, using 10 years of experience working with both, um, you know, in a, in a company setting but also since most of these companies are dealing with individual entrepreneurs, they kind of can understand both sides of, of, of the world. So that's kind of my, my insight into that world. So, so give us some examples then of what you would work on day to day or week to week with these brands, because it is different from many that are singular in focus. How do you, um, you know, are you doing the same kind of work with all the brands or is it different based on the brand's needs or stage of their development? Great question. It's very similar, just the scaling is different. Number of people in each entity differs. Um, so the, the, you know, Paul's largest company, I think is circa like I think 28 people, maybe 30 people now in that team. And in that team, I actually helped put a cell of virtual employees, virtual assistants into that company very early on because they were kind of bursting at the seams when I kind of first stepped in to help with the help center, uh, coaching admin and, and various roles within the company. Um, so really it kind of comes down to just, you know, understanding the, the, the current operations, um, whether it's the one-man company or a 30-man company, um, understanding the operations, understanding the, you know, where can efficiency be improved, effectiveness be improved, communication be improved. Um, and so two, two things kind of happened simultaneously. So right around my 50th birthday, and I'm not sure how this happened, but I came across this book called, I don't know if you, it's called Wisdom of the Bees, Okay. I started looking at, and this is when I was still with my prior company, and I got fascinated by the study of bees as it applies to leadership and um, organizations. And so when I started to work with these companies, I was kind of modeling off the EOS kind of system as a starting point. But I started to then build a kind of hybrid model using what I was learning about bee structure and bee organization <laughs> and bee behavior um, and kind of overlaying that onto EOS and kind of develop this hybrid system that I call the, the B-inspired operating system. Um, of course. And, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And, and it's worked out really well because rather than being a bee in the hive, I get to be more of the beekeeper kind of watching over the hive and seeing where, where things can be improved from the outside versus being you know, part of the, the challenge on the inside. Incredible. I mean, what I what I really love is that it's um, it's the bee culture and that it's Bijal and like the 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 fact that you actually have like a book to back it up is just sick. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, it just fits too perfectly. I love that you're even wearing your corporate colors now that are attached to the bee culture exactly. with the yellow and black. 
Um, all right, so you mentioned that you kind of assess the operations and the communication and the efficiencies. How do you how do you assess companies? How do you assess the gap and what they need to be working on? You know, when I when I first started working with Paul's company, it was literally one on one conversations, just starting off with a conversation with 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 folks there. And um, you know, in coming out of the coming out of the coaching world, I developed you know, a real toolkit of of um, tools I could use to understand people. So I really wasn't trying to understand the company at first. I was really trying to understand individuals in the company. And I, I have a concept I call good as gold. And it's basically the G is what people are good at. The O is what they are okay doing. You know, they, they can do it, but it's just not their, 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 their best use of their time or their skill. Um, L is what they like doing. And D is what they dislike doing. And I really just had a conversation around that framework and just said, okay, great. Tell me, what are, you, what are you good at doing? You know, what are you okay doing that you, that you have to do a lot of every single day? Mm. And by having those conversations, I was able to kind of start building a framework of where people may have been mispositioned in the company, where their uh, joy of working may have slowly kind of disappeared over time because they were spending far too long in jobs and roles that just didn't really suit them. You know, when you're, when you're, when you're kind of in this, uh, I don't say startup company mode, but evolving companies very quickly to, hey, can you do that? Can you do that? And very quickly, you're, you're wearing several hats. It's a very, very much like entrepreneurs, right? Where trying to, in attempt, an attempt to save money, you know, we start wearing the hat of accountant and, and course developer and marketer and, and sales. And, you know, it's shown time and time again, that's just a, not a very effective way of growing an organization. And again, going back to the bees, that's not how even nature works, you know, inside a, in a beehive, right? Everything is very compartmentalized. And you're really taking a, an employee and saying, okay, what's the best use of this employee? Because if, they, if they're doing more of what they're good at and more of what they like doing, they're going to be far more content and happier in, inside that company. So that was like literally the starting point, just to understand the people in, in, in the company. Okay, that's interesting. Now, once you actually get to understand the needs and you get to understand the CEO, um, how do you start to to prioritize which things to work on, which opportunities? Because you, you could be faced with like seven or 70 different ideas or opportunities in front of you. How do you prioritize those? You know, I went for some quick win, wins initially. So, okay, what, what can I... What can I do that's going to be a quick win, right? Um, so, kind of helping, you know, the the help center was it was it was a key thing because they're they're overwhelmed. So, implementing a new a new software, adding a few virtual assistants to the to the team took the burden of the help center because they're so core to, and, and really the um the center point between our clients and the company. So, I went for a quick quick win there because I knew exactly what needed to be done um, with that. Then I moved into the coaching department and, and <clears throat> helped them implement a new kind of coaching system. And I, I kind of left the, the, the toughest part and the part that I was least familiar with uh, to, to the end, which is the finance department, because I had the least experience with that department. And I thought that I may need to get to understand the company and the culture and the, and the, the challenges that they were facing um, before I really dive into something that was more complex. That's, that's kind of approximately how I did it. Just, you know, went some quick wins. So, so that way the, the company felt like, oh, we're making some progress. If I went with the toughest things first, it could take several months to really see some results. And, you know, I, I didn't want to create any kind of loss of confidence in the, in the long-term ability. Mm -hmm. I'm very similar. I, I tend to work on the low-hanging fruit, believing that momentum creates <laughs> momentum. And it's the more little changes that we do that start to stack up on top of each other that create the big shift 
versus the big perfect project that might take you know six months to to actually initiate yeah um so you're doing again something that's a little bit rare in, in working as the ceo with multiple different brands how do you organize your time because you know often we see coos get really buried in that one company that they're running they get overwhelmed in the one company how are you doing it with multiple companies and staying kind of orbiting away from that giant hairball yeah um essentially block off time you know a certain amount of time each day for each company so my first my morning hours are dedicated to um uh the uk companies and there's two of them i work with so it kind of you know so i kind of um, start the first hour with one and second hour for the other. It changes day to day, but essentially the first morning part is, is really uh, for the UK clients. And then in the afternoon, I, I serve the US clients. So, and I basically, at times, all blocked off my calendar. Obviously, there's meeting times, and then there's you know, a few hours for actually getting some stuff done for them. So it, it, takes, it took a little bit of kind of adjusting time blocks here and there, but um, you kind of fall into a rhythm eventually when you, when you do it. The, the, the trap is, to want to do more than the hours allow. Because essentially, you, instead of having one job, you're, you're basically, you've got right. several jobs, right? Yeah. So that self-discipline and, and say, okay, what, you know, what's my boundary? What, what is it I can do and I can't do? Because when, when you've been doing, again, for 10 years, I played multiple roles. So everything from copywriting, video, scripting, um, so, you know, customer service, uh, speaking on a stage, you, know, you name it, I've played almost every single role. And that's very entrepreneurial, and, and, but it's just not a very effective way. So I knew what it was like to not do it the right way and to be stretched all the time. And it, that, was, that was even one of my things going into the company, which is looking to see where people were being stretched and looking to see okay, what needs to happen to, to make your work day more realistic so you start enjoying the work and not let it be a burden to you. Yeah, that's interesting. The other thing, you, so when you talk about kind of the prioritizing for yourself and um, you know, not letting yourself go outside of boundaries. How about saying no to others? What have you learned that's a good way to do that? Um, I think either no, or, either no, or not now. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it, you know, I think you just you just when you when you know that the consequence of it is going to basically stress you out or or make your day less happy. I think you just find nice ways of just saying it. But I've never really had to say. It. I think when, when you create the boundaries, kind of very early on. Um, and, and you can know who in the team to work with to solve this. Again, you know, I'm very careful not to uh, attempt to get sucked into the, the minutia and the, the kind of the cross the T's and dot the I's. The analysis yeah. will be effective in terms of my role in overseeing operations versus being in operations. Right? So there is, there's someone in the company who is very much hands-on. She's fantastic at it. You know? um, that just wouldn't be the best role for me. But having a role where I'm kind of just sitting just on the outside with, with kind of a, more of a 360 picture. Um, it's more like kind of a dashboard of the company. Um, it even allows me kind of even a greater perspective than sometimes even the CEO, who's very much still stuck in the business. So now over time, you know, we want to uh, alleviate that. It's happening slowly, slowly but surely. Of course, the current situation didn't help because whatever we, we planned to do in January, kind of went the parole toilet hole, you know, um, come, come February and uh, March. But, you know, we, we stayed on track. Um, it's been a, actually a, overall a really good year for us um, in terms of being able to very, shift very quickly um, when crisis hit. How about working with, with these various entrepreneurs? Um, have you noticed anything with them in terms of, without 
making them all the same where what are the similarities of the entrepreneurial ceo that you've noticed and how do you how do you work with them how do you nudge them in the right direction you know what have you had to work with them on you know so, so it's very interesting you know even the ceos i'm working with they've all come through an entrepreneurial path so it wasn't that long ago that they're literally one man two man companies so mm-hmm. as they as they as they grown into more say the small end of small depending on how you categorize micro small lot you know medium these days you know a 30 person company you you see the traits you still see the traits very much of an entrepreneur ceo versus a corporate ceo there are some you know the key key differences so i i definitely say the the entrepreneurs the ceos i'm working with um a lot more entrepreneurial and you know one of the one of the downsides of that is because they've been able to adapt to performing so many different roles, there's kind of a natural assumption that everybody in the team can just do that as easily, right? And so, you know, without having to get into a, a you know, um, a loggerhead around it, I, I do a lot of the work on the, in the background where, you know, I don't have to even bring this up for discussion. I just slowly and kind of surely ensure that if, there, if someone's, you know, leading a coaching team, that that's basically 80% of what they have to do. If somebody's leading help center, that's 80% of what, what they have to do. So sometimes you just got to work your magic, work your, you know, your uh, strategy behind the scenes as long as it's not detrimental to the company. Now, do you have deliverables for some of these brands that you're working with or do you leave the deliverables up to them? Uh, no, I leave majority of deliverables up to them. I, I, more, I'll, I will introduce concepts and ideas that I believe could benefit them. But when it get, gets into the actual implementation, I let the team pretty much do most of them. Um, now, there are a couple of smaller companies where, I, you know, it's just almost easier for me just to kind of do it sometimes, and I do. That kind of stretches my boundary of not getting caught up in the doingness of it. But mm. sometimes, you know, um, you know I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do it. But, yeah, generally speaking, I try and stay out of the, the cross the T's and dot the I's aspect of it. Is it the kind of thing that, that you would be able to transfer that skill if you were working as a full-time dedicated COO for one company? Could you avoid the deliverables? And accountability, not accountability, but could could you kind of stay at that level you're operating at now, do you think? I think it'd be harder. I think um, when you're working full-time, I think there's a higher expectation of you to kind of get stuck in, to be honest, to be honest with you. So it'd be hard for me to say it couldn't be done. Um, but I you know, I think you know, if you went in with that mindset and you kept those boundaries up from the very beginning, I think it's easier. But I think it's a lot harder that if you step in, and you basically roll up your sleeves, let's, let's get this thing done. I think it's harder to transition out of it once you're doing it. But I think if you step in and become very clear with leadership and, and the, the, the team, hey, this is my role, this is how I can best serve you, and I don't want you to mistake um, lack of doing versus lack of ownership and lack of care, but more that, that that's not my role. Right. Yeah, your role is really to grow people and thinking and strategy in alignment with plans. How do you how do you stay aligned with the vision that the entrepreneur has? What do you do to stay aligned with that vision, and what do you do to make sure that they're aligned with your plan and ideas? Well, you know the reason that my my previous ten year relationship kind of came to an end was precisely because of that. You know, our, our vision and values went in two very different directions. Uh, so when I started these new um, relationships, making sure that we had a similar vision and values on day one is important. But there's no guarantees, Cameron. I mean, look at people change. Um, sometimes opportunities change people too. Uh, so, you know, but as of today, 
And it's very important for me, even continuing in a relationship with anybody, that our vision and values are aligned. And the moment they're not, that's probably when I to kind of shake hands and say, hey, look, you know, you're taking the company in a direction that I really can't support. Uh, so I wish you well, but you know, I can't, I can't be part of this journey moving forward. Well, how about if their vision, it's, their vision is, a, is a great vision, they're aligned with core values, they're a good person, but you're just not really aware of where they want to take the company. How do you stay aware of what, I, I call it the vivid vision document that I try to get entrepreneurs to do where they describe their company in that finished state in three years. Is there any tool that you use to make sure that you stay or get on the same page with them? Uh, right now, you know, we're using our quarterly planning, um, Cameron, to kind of at least, well, the events of this year have made it very strange, right? Because in January, we had a very clear vision of where we wanted to go, what the future was, what the next two, three years were. And honestly, you know, the last six months has really been um, responding to, to the crisis, for better or word. But now we're kind of getting into patterns. So literally just today, I kind of set up some forecasting tools for the next six months, right? Normally, we do forecasting for for a whole year, but because everything's kind of running on a shorter time time span right now, we're just like, okay, let's get through to half the year. All right, yeah, six now let's get is through. Great. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so we're, we're kind of now, now we're kind of, we found a pattern, a rhythm in this new economy. Now we're kind of getting back to, okay, has our vision really changed? So, you know, we, we, we reevaluate the vision, the core values um, every, every quarter. So right at the end of this month, we'll have another visioning. And again, these are shorter term visions that we would normally do. Um, but I think right now, I think that's maybe a, a better way to look at it because tomorrow things will be different. How about, how about where the entrepreneur has those kind of entrepreneurial seizures? They come in with the seven new ideas of the day or the, the idea of the day or the idea of the week. Um, how do you how do you either get on the same page, say no to some of them, uh, delay some of the starts of some of them? How do you work with that? Uh, a lot of it is, is non-confrontational, Cameron. A lot of it is just nodding the head and then doing something quite contrary <laughs> to, to, to what, that, what was just spoken. Because a lot of times um, these ideas are never solidified. They're, they're etheric. So, you know, you, you, you park them, you, you, you note them, uh, and then you just decide, okay, where is the best use of the team's time right now? Um, and then park those other ideas for another discussion for, no, for another day. But yeah, it is a challenge. Um, and you, you do hear a lot, I, I hear, you know, new ideas once or twice a week, if not more. And you just got to smile, just kind of say, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Acknowledge the idea um, and then come back to, but what is our priority right now? And where do we need to focus our resources, team and effort to get through the next six months? Now, when you park that idea, do you put it on a list somewhere so they know it's parked or, or yeah. do you? We have, okay. we have a big list, big list of ideas and, and some of the ideas are great. You know, some of the ideas, now most of the ideas would say they're all in alignment with the general direction of what we want right. to create. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's a question of, you know, what's, what, what's needed today versus what's needed in the future. Now, this is what's interesting. Even in, if you look at study, study Bs, you know, they are very future focused in terms of that they're working today, but always planning for the future even how they collect and forage. And, and so a percentage of the, the, the bee population are dedicated to R&D, no matter what's happening in the hive. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think at the end of the day, um, sometimes their ideas are great, but it's just we don't have the resources of people, time, or money to start it right now mm -hmm. or to fully execute it, even though if we could start it. Um, but the entrepreneur, it, it, to me, it seems like they, they want someone just to say, I hear your idea. Let's put that idea somewhere so we don't lose it. 
to allow you to go back and keep it generating new ideas. And, and we got this. We won't necessarily start it right now, but we're not going to lose it either. And then yeah. every every quarter or every six months, you might go back and look at the ideas. And half the time, they look at the idea later and they're like, yeah, kill that, kill that. That was stupid. Um, but But at least they know it's in a safe place, right? Yeah, and another way to do it is you put some parameters or some triggers that that allow that idea to start, right? So, okay, all right, you know, this is a great idea, but we need to reach this level or this this place for this idea to really be, you know, worthwhile to invest mm -hmm. in. So you can put some conditions that that will trigger the initiation of an idea. And if you don't, then you know, um, the the, you know, the leadership has, has agreed that we won't start this idea until X Y Z has been met. Right. That makes sense. You also mentioned kind of addressing it with them in a non-confrontational way. How do you address things that maybe there is more conflict? Do you have a, a model or a style that you use where, where you've got to actually say no or disagree with them completely and, and do it in a, how do you do it? You know, if, if I've done it, it's been so, I guess this is where the kind of the, the years of coaching kind of comes into it where it's really a discussion versus a confrontation. So as yet, touch wood, in, in, in the roles I'm playing, I've not really had it where there's complete disagreement on something. So, so I can't really ask that in, in all fairness you know, right now. But in my previous um, encounter, you know, we, we did get into it. You know, we, definitely there was times where I just did not agree with the direction we were going in. I may become very verbal, but in, in that situation, I was often overturned. You know? mm. And you know, I've, I've kind of have a track record every time I've kind of vetoed an idea and we've done it anyway. It hasn't gone to plan. So I'm kind of, at least, you know, we're going to, I can wear that feather in my hat. Interesting. All right. So how about yourself and your role? How, how have you continued to adapt and grow um, as a COO? Lots of learning. Lot, lots of, you know, because again, going from, I wouldn't say COO was the, the key role in, in the 10 year relationship, but really being a number two. Um, but it's it it almost like a two-man business with 500 employees. So mm -hmm. it wasn't run like an organization. It was, it was run like a, you know, um, uh, two friends starting a business and ending up with 500 employees overseas almost. Um, so this, is, this has been a lot of learning, a lot of growing, a lot of kind of reading. Um, again, so I went through all the traction books, scaling up, <clears throat> and just kind of, so okay. And then just a fascination for just human behavior. So I think just, you know, so going from working with, say, uh, thousands of entrepreneurs. Now I get to work with a team of people who truly are working together and, and just observing a different set of human dynamics. And, um, but I enjoy it. I, I enjoy that human, you know, how human behavior shows up and, and what you can do to make, you know, kind of put that coaching hat back on and kind of coach people to another way of being or doing that serves them better. And, and just seeing if that, if that, philosophy works it works yeah tell me about um uh, what are the common things that you see companies doing wrong because you've been around and exposed to a lot of them in that kind of operational role are there a few areas that most companies are doing you know haven't got it figured out or they're not doing the right things some simple things they could change yes yeah, simple thing i think you know um again i said you know pe people wearing too many different hats is definitely one of them i think it's very draining on an individual to, to attempt to be good when they have to do too many different diverse diverse things. Um, I, I continue to see breakdown in communication all the time, just people's unwillingness to talk about a situation, right? Um, and even though all the books are out there, I think it's just part of human behavior to, to just not want to get into, say, confrontation or want to discuss 
and probably you know, even though we have you know leadership meetings every week, you know, um, uh, you know, I've observed patterns where people just don't bring stuff up, even though they they really want to say something about somebody, they'll they'll bottle it up. But usually, what happens is it kind of backfires. At some point or other, it bubbles over and it becomes a much larger issue than than it should. Um, but I think the number one thing which I see from entrepreneurship all the way up through, which is people or entrepreneurs, companies attempting to do too many different things. I yeah. just continue to see that as a, as a general pattern um, over and over again. And um, you know, I thought it was really more of an entrepreneurial problem, but I kind of see that also at, at the at the larger side of businesses too. And I just kind of think, you know, there's there's some you know model like the one thing. I'm not saying that the one thing is a is a one size fits all for everybody, but I definitely see that the less people do, and if they can find that one track, one or two tracks that really start working for them, just to kind of double down on those things, um, I tend to find the 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 results are just easier to come by. It's like the flywheel that Jim Collins talks about, right? When you find that one thing that you keep pushing on, that momentum creates momentum. Is it because is it because companies do you think are unable to say no, so they just say yes to a lot of the ideas, or is it because they're trying to and they don't project plan and they're they're overly optimistic, or um, are they trying to to make themselves busy? What do you think? Why do you think it, we get to this situation where where we got too much on our plates? I, I think there's a there's a little bit of a fear of missing out, a uh, fear of you know putting eggs into into one basket. Um, you know, this is a question I've been kind of analyzing for several months now, including my own past camera. I mean, if I look at my own entrepreneurial behavior, you know, it very much is like, you know, you've got to do two or three different things and it's, it's, it's just, it's just never worked out. And, and yet I see it all the time, you know, so, you know, and I, and I think at the core, at the core of it is, is, is a combination of greed and fear and, you know, trying to, trying to make money everywhere and, and not being willing to fit into, to one good way of running a business. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I've seen some where it gets at the, more at the corporate level where um, they tend to just say yes. It's kind of the yes man, right? Like, mm-hmm. sure. And, and it all it almost becomes like we start validating our busyness in our business area because we've got so much on the go that doesn't necessarily need to drive anything. Have you, how have you been around saying no to IT? A lot of the IT projects that we need to build or we need to, you know, um, tie everything together, or we need to automate stuff, often tends to be a lot of busy work, it seems, versus, you know, high leverage. Have you got any experience around that at all? Yeah, in, 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 in most of the cases, I'm, I'm the one kind of, in, you know, I'm going to say I'm the one, but I've definitely initiated a couple of IT type projects, the like introductions of new software, which I felt would have been a, you know, improvement to, to the company. So I'm probably more from it from the other side right now mm. uh, in terms of, okay, you know what? This is a software issue. I, I normally start with the, the basics that is it a process? Is it the software or programs that we're using or is it, is it the, you know, the professionals or the people that are running the processes? And if the processes are in, in place, then we look at what, are the, the, what software can improve the process and finding you know, who are the right people to run, uh, run the process. Now, a lot of times, you know, I'm starting off with no processes. So before I look at people as being the issue, you know, we have to kind of put a, a better process in place first and then see if things improve. If they don't, if you, know the, if you, have, if you believe in the process and it's still not creating a result for you, then you've got to start looking at, okay, is it, is it because the software is too old? We need to change that. But usually, you know, then you're at, down at the very low level of, okay, now we have a people issue. Yeah. The process, we've got the right software in place. It's still not 
running as efficiently? What's going on at the people level? Yeah, I think that that's, that tends to be my approach as well, is that I try to get you know any system to be used with a pen and paper first, and then we'll go to a Google Sheet or a Google Doc, and then we might automate it with some software. But to go right to the software before you truly understand the processes and the issues and the optimization of it and why we're using what we're doing, like it almost often doesn't make sense to optimize, right? Or to automate because you're, you're automating something you haven't even really thought through yet. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Now, what about the virtual teams? Cause all the companies you're working with are remote. Any, any learnings or lessons that as a lot of companies are having to move toward virtual that you already know works great or that you've, you know, you used to do that you no longer do. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll take this conversation back to an entrepreneurial level first because this is kind of the experience that I've seen. And a lot of times the, the systems and processes are not in place um, to bring a virtual team member into the fold. So I'm talking about a, a true work, like virtual assistants first before we talk about virtual yep. team. And you know, what a lot of times people, entrepreneurs would pick up a book or go to a seminar and people talking about virtual assistants and have an executive assistant and they think that this person is going to start solving their problems. So they hire somebody, whether it's five dollars, ten dollars, fifteen, twenty, whatever, and you know, and, and it just doesn't work out. And whenever I've had that situation, the first thing I'd ask the entrepreneur was like, "Hey, show me the instructions, or show me, show me the process, or the you know what you gave to the virtual assistant to do, um, so we can understand what, what were the directions." Sure. And nine nothing. out of ten times, there was just nothing. There was like literally. Yeah. No, uh, no, I use the example on stage, which is do my social media. It's like, well, what does that mean, right? Um, so quite often the origination of, of a virtual assistant issue stems at the entrepreneur not knowing exactly what to outsource. Yeah. Now, let's take that to a corporate level, right? So now we're working virtual teams. So nothing really in theory should have changed as such other than the fact that we don't get to kind of walk over to somebody's desk and have a conversation, Right. But what's happening is that people seem to be, you know, between um, uh, you know, everything is basically being done in, in meetings versus quick quick chats that we could norm normally have. So this is a slight kind of behavior or operation change that, that's impacting the, the virtual team. But again, it comes down to the core thing that if everyone knows their role and everyone has their KPIs kind of set, then, you know, things should continue more or less, you know, on track. Um, and, and, and those weekly traction meetings, whatever you call them, um, should help keep the team on the same page. It is harder, you know, than being able to just kind of walk over someone's desk and say, hey, sure, you do of course. But, I, but I, you know, again, having done it for, for, for 10, 10 plus years now, um, you know, I was one of the few that I didn't have to adapt to this new virtual working experience. That's just how a lot of us are already doing it. Um, so we've used to just kind of giving instructions, writing instructions, creating process documents, and, and that's just kind of a day-to-day -day standard for us. Um, I think even what the, the need to learn how to delegate better is becoming a key skill that we used to take for granted, but now when teams are virtual, you, you really need to understand the art of delegation yeah. um, and then that planning process. All right, Bijal, if we were to go back to the 22-year-old the Bijal, you know, graduating from university, heading off on the career um, what word of it, you know, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known at 21 or 22? It's, it's great. You asked me that, you know, one of the companies I'm working with, uh, Cameron is, is financial freedom out of the UK. And basically it's, it's a, um, a, a, a money smarter financial literacy program for kids. And I was kind of going through some of this material that they're teaching kids. I was like, man, I just wish I knew that 
back in my young days. Um, but, but one graph comes to mind in particular, and it's the uh, compound effort effect. Um, people may be more familiar with the compound interest curve where basically, you know, you, you save, 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 save. And at one point, yeah. interest kind of goes up. So yeah. one thing I've seen that, um, and I believe that if I, if I really understood that curve back when I was 22, when I first dabbled with entrepreneurship and, and stuck to one thing long enough, like, you know, once you know something works for you, um, and you, and you stick to it just long enough for that, for, to hit, to hit that curve, that inflection point. I just believe, you know, that I've just seen so many entrepreneurs, even businesses, not really have a track, have a path to that inflection point, or they give up right before that inflection point starts. So really, find that one thing that you 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 know you, that's working for you, and if if it's working for you, just keep doing it daily um, until you hit that inflection point before you, you you quit too easy, too too early. I heard a great saying that ties in with that. It said it takes a long time to get to the night before you become the overnight success story. Exactly. And yeah. I, Brian and I, who was Brian, was the CEO of One Eight Hundred Got Junk. When I was COO, we were out one night at, a, at an awards dinner, and uh, one of the other CEOs in Vancouver, or wasn't even from Vancouver, it was from out of town, said, "Well, you guys are like the the overnight success story," and I think we wanted to kill him. Like we, I was just like, how, how can you possibly call us the overnight success? Like, where were you for the next last six years? And then for Brian, for the 10 years prior to me coming, like he was there grinding it out for 16 years before we became the overnight success. Right. Yeah. All right. Bijal Parmar, the virtual COO. Thank you for joining us on the second command podcast. Really appreciate the time and the expertise today. You've been listening to second in command. Brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.